Super progressive. Super progressive. Today on Super Progressive. This is the Super Progressive Podcast. So sick. Welcome back to another episode of Super Progressive. And for our debut episode of season two, we are joined by a dream guest. We have Steve Lawler here with us. Thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. Um, like, I can't explain how many times this past month and through this whole project of Super Progressive, where we're investigating the history of house music, that we've watched your documentary, The Art of the DJ. And you said it best in the first line of the uh, documentary, where you say other genres take their history so seriously, but in house music culture, it's something that we don't really talk about. But um, here we are today, and we're just so excited to hear some of the stories and some of the knowledge you have to share with us. So thank you sure. so much. No, you're welcome. Yeah, definitely. So when we made the drive seven hours up from Los Angeles this morning, we were obviously stoked for the interview, obviously Stoked to see you play, but the one thing we're really excited about is to see you play in front of a San Francisco audience. Now, in your documentary, you said that this city means something special to you, and from our research, we know that San Francisco is an important city in the history of underground dance music. What's your relationship with San Francisco, and why is the city so important? Well, around the same time I had my residency at Twilo in New York, which was the I think 2000, 2001. What I, I used to fly to the States and I would do uh, West and East. So I'd fly into the West Coast. I would do release here in San Francisco on the Friday. And then on the Saturday, I would go to Twilo, New York. And I would do that once a month. So I had a residency in both. Now, it's well documented that I had a residency in Twilo, and a lot of people talk about that because it's Twilo. It was one of the most infamous clubs of, of electronic music history. But people don't realise at the same time, on that weekend, I was doing release in San Fran. And in those days, I would play at least eight hours. So imagine this. I would get a flight from the UK into San Francisco on the first day, perhaps, then I would play an eight-hour set at release in San Fran. I, would, I wouldn't sleep. I would then get on my flight, try and get maybe two, three, four hours sleep over to the East Coast. And then I would play Twilo for 12 hours and then go back to England. And, and that's proper hard work. That was, and that was all with vinyl as well, right? So, you know, um, and there used to be a whole entourage of us travelling at that time. There'd be four or five of us travelling. Um, yeah, great times. And, and my relationship with San Fran was in those... In those years, because I was playing at a club regularly, I ended up becoming really good friends with people that were working at the venue, people that I knew that just came to the shows regularly. And, you know, I have a whole crew of people here in San Fran that I know right back from those years. And the interesting thing is, over the years when I've come back to San Fran, even when release finished, um, I was doing other venues here. And I've always kind of... Uh, I don't know, in certain cities more than others, but you kind of straddle the difference. But I have an older crowd and I have a young crowd. I have the young crowd because of my um, affiliations with my brands, Warriors and Viva Music. So that kind of appeals to a younger audience. And then I've got the, the older audience that would come to my residences back in the early 2000s. So I still have that here in San Fran, which is, makes it a, you know, a great place to, to perform. 
Definitely. Well, considering you're probably going to be on the stage and we're going to be on the dance floor in about an hour from now, we don't have too much time. And I wish we could go through your whole documentary, but there's some parts that I'm really interested in asking you about. Um, Nothing is worth skipping in your story, but we will, for the sake of time, I'd like to jump ahead to your residency at Space Ibiza. Yeah. And this is because one... I've never been to Space Ibiza, but I think I speak for a lot of people my age when we know Space Ibiza is a special place, but we don't necessarily understand the magic of it. And, you know, you're watching the documentary and Carl Cox is calling you the king of the terrace. I want to ask you, what is so magical about the terrace at Space Ibiza? (laughs) Well, first of all, Carl was calling me the king of the terrace because he couldn't use the phrase king of space, which everybody else was. <laughs> so I just want to say that, right? Um, yeah, it's a, you know what? It, like anything else that ends up becoming this really important, pivotal moment in your life, it happened completely organically. So my first gig at space, the DJ booth was behind the bar. There wasn't even a DJ booth on the terrace. So space, the club, was all about the inside. And it was an after-hours club. It opened at 7 a.m. And it would run till about 10, 12 a.m. It was an after-hours club. And the terrace was a place where they had tables and chairs outside where people could come and take a breather. And they started playing music. They got some decks behind the bar. Um, and the first time I played there, I think it was 1999, 1999. And because the, the music inside was predominantly techno, it was the, the person running the club, the person that owned the club. Uh, you know, Pepe was Spanish, but he had people running the club that were German, a guy called Fritz. So all the music inside was, was techno. But out on the terrace, it was time for Ibiza. The sun was shining, people playing some more sort of house melodies, you know. And all of a sudden, you realise people are dancing on the tables. No one's using the tables and chairs, they're standing on them. So then eventually the tables and chairs got moved, became a dance floor and, you know, the terrace was born. And I was at that point when the, ta- the, the terrace was kind of born. This was at a point when a promoter, Darren Hughes, um, he said to me, look, I'm going to start a night here. I want you to be my resident. And I was to play in the afternoon, um, which I did. But the response that I got from people was so amazing that when the guest DJs would come on after me, the vibe would just drop. The promoter saw this straight away within one season. At the start of the season, I'm playing in the afternoon, two or three hours. And then by the end of the season, I'm closing the terrace. So in one season, it literally jumped from this to this. It happened really quickly. And that went into the next year. And By 2004, that was my room. And everyone knew it. Every DJ that came, you know, I had David Getter playing before me, before he became this megastar. Um, Carl Cox, when he would come and play on the terrace, would play before me. Uh, you know, Armin van Helden, you name it, or everybody. And, and it was my job to close the terrace because the promoter wanted me to do it, not knowing what a guest DJ would come and play and how it would work. He knew that whatever happened, I would close out on a high, right? It was my room. I knew what to do. And from that moment, it, you know, I... The whole phrase, the king of space, came about and all this stuff happened and every magazine wanted me on the front cover. And this was really, in those four years, from 2000 to 2004, 
was the most hedonistic time of my life. It was crazy. I didn't really know how to deal with it. If you've seen my documentary, you'll know what I'm talking about. I had to take it all in. I kind of, from 97, went from being nobody playing at Cafe Mambo to all of a sudden being on the front cover of most you know, dance music press and flying around in private jet. And I was still only about 23 years old. So uh, I just dealt with it the way I knew at the time. Um, which, like I say, if you've watched the film, you'll, you'll know the story. Um, what do you think, you know, you talk about your time at Cafe Mambo, and that job itself sounded like something I've never heard. You know, you described it as you're in charge of creating the soundtracks to yeah. people's time in Ibiza. It's <clears throat> exactly how it was, yeah. What did you learn about the magic of Ibiza from that role that may have prepared you for something like the terrace? Um... <sighs> The weird thing is, I mean, to, to, first of all, to be a DJ at somewhere like Mambo, you have to be a real DJ. You have to be a collector of music because you can't just go in there and play like 90-minute set and your job is to just bang it because that's the easy part. Um, I basically used my eyes and I looked around and I saw the energy. I saw the, 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 the scene that I was playing to, like playing to a movie like I described in my film. It's like... In the afternoon, people are relaxing, putting on sun lotion, you know, they're chilling. And my job was to enhance that mood. But then as the sun set, I would enhance that with ambient music. So I'd go from chill out to ambient. And then as the dark would come, I would kind of bring the tempo up into deep house. And then as it would get, you know, past 12 a.m. into the night, you know, I'm like, you know, pushing it a little bit because that is generally the mood that, either people would naturally go on or I would assist them to go on that sort of path. It, what it did teach me was the real art of DJing, the real art of programming. You don't just play one set for every club. It doesn't work that way. You have to take in the environment that you're playing in. If I'm playing at a festival, it would be different to how I play in a 600-cat underground club in a basement uh, on a beach. You can't just play one set does not fit all. You need to be a DJ that can literally understand a room and program your music. Do it in your style. Do it in the tracks that you play. But God knows we have enough of them. But do it in a way that enhances people's mood and kind of connects them, brings it all together, you know, makes it special. Definitely, definitely. Um you know, one of, one of the highlights for me watching your documentary, because it's an era that we're so fascinated by and it was actually an introduction to this era of DJing, is your work with Global Underground. Yeah. Now, my question is, by the time New Breed came out, which was a series showcasing the next generation of superstar DJs or the next sound, my question is, you had already been a resident DJ at Cream at that point, which in my opinion is one of the top jobs you can have in DJing. Why, what were you seeking from this project and why was the New Breed album such a big deal for you if you kind of already had accomplished so much? Well, in my mind, I hadn't accomplished so much. So when I got the residency at Cream in Liverpool, my job ultimately was to warm up to open the, the rooms for other DJs. 
which I did. And then as that residency went on, I got gave better slots until eventually I remember closing the courtyard, which was Paul Oakenfold's room after Paul Oakenfold on New Year's Eve. That was only my second gig at Cream. I was 19. Now, at that time, Paul Oakenfold was the biggest DJ on the planet. It wasn't long after his Goa mix, and, you know, it was just this huge thing. And Darren Hughes, for whatever reason, just trusted me. He knew I could do it, even though I didn't at that point. I was like, you know, what the fuck am I going to do here? This is Paul's room, the courtyard, 2,000 people, New Year's Eve. I remember, I remember shaking so much I could barely pick up the stylus and put it on the record. But, you know, a challenge like that, you either, you know, you either face it head on and you deal with it and you, you come out of it blossoming or it, it crucifies you. In my case, it worked really well. It was the, one of the best sets of my life. And after that, I was made a resident. But my job, ultimately, as a resident was to make sure the music was always right in the club. Cream started to change and bring in more and more trance DJs and commercial DJs. I didn't belong there. And Darren Hughes said to me he was going to open a club in London. Um, he asked me to go with him and I just said, look, I, I, would, I will come with you if I can have my own night you know, and do something that I believe in. Which at the time, again, it's the same, we're going to come to Global Underground in a minute. It, it was very cheeky of me to ask such a thing at that level in my career, but I really believed in myself. So I knew what I was doing in my mind was amazing and I, I had full confidence that just given the right platform, I would be able to, you know, convince other people. So I went to uh, the club in London, home, and I did my own night deep south. That happened. At the same time, I did a compilation series called Dark Drums. And what I was trying to do was show people this sound that I had kind of developed. And it was from coming to places like San Francisco and New York. By having the residences in these places, I was going record shopping and picking up all this like tribal... Uh, even there was a record label, Siesta Recordings, all this sort of like West Coast deep, druggy, sort of like percussive music. And I was just hooked. Nobody was doing it in the UK apart from one of a DJ, Craig Richards. And the funny thing was, he started his residency in London at Fabric at the same time I started my residency in London at home. And very quickly, that sound, I, uh, I put on my Dark Drums album to show people this is the new sound of of where I'm at, this is, this is who I am, this is my thing, this is what I found. Those did really well, and off the back of those albums doing really well, Global Underground contacted me to do a, a new breed. It turned out that my new breed was their biggest selling new breed, but not only that, and I remember this conversation with James Todd like it was yesterday, my new breed album was one of the best selling albums on Global Underground's everything. So... For me, I had my heroes, Deep Dish, Tenaglia, Sasha. They've all got these Global Underground albums doing incredible. And mine is up there selling with these. So, you know, my feet weren't on the ground at this point. I, you know, I was flying. To think that I'd achieved this through doing something that I wanted to do, that was my own. I didn't have to do something that appealed to somebody else. It was me. And this is the interesting part. 
when the album did really well, Global Underground came to me and said, right, we want to give you, we want to put you on the main series and do like a Steve Lawler Buenos Aires or where, where would you like to do it? And to this day, it's crazy. My answer was, I don't want to go on that series. I want my own series. And Global, Und- Global Underground said to me, we don't give DJs their own series. And I was like, I know, but I want my own series. And that was the birth of Lights Out. And Global Underground hadn't done that for anybody else. Honestly, I really did not think they would do it. Um, it was, I, I was hanging out with James at the time and I just put it out there because it's what I wanted. Little did I realise they would actually do it, which was uh, still to this day blew me away. I want to talk about Lights Out a little bit because you made it very clear in the documentary that Lights Out was inspired by the vibe Danny Tanaglia would curate in New York through his residency at Sound Factory. Now, beyond just the name Lights Out, how, like, what about Danny T's residency were you trying to bring into the atmosphere of your Lights Out concept? Well, the Lights Out concept was based on something that Danny did. He did Lights Out before I even thought of it. Um, I was at a party of his, actually, at Space, the original Space in Miami, and there was a moment in the night, and I'm standing here, and I've got Clive Henry to one side of me, Rocky from Express 2 the next, and the, the, the dance floor was just full of industry. And Danny's, you know, going up into techno and then down into house, and he's all over the place musically, but it works perfectly. And all of a sudden, the lights just go off. And then these two huge torchlights come on, which Danny was famous for. So the only lights in the whole of this club was Danny's torchlights. He's doing this. Wait, in the, in the DJ booth, just yeah. in his hands going? He had these big, like, wow. you know, big, like, huge lights that you'd have on a, on a shift? Yeah. He's got two of them, and now all of a sudden he's doing the lights in the booth. <laughs> fucked up. That's awesome. Right. And no other light in the club. And I'm like, in this moment, and I, I was just totally, and I've told Danny this, and Danny gets kind of shy when I tell him how much he means to me. As, you know, like oh, he's, he's such biggest, a humble guy. He's, he's very so humble. Nice. He's a beautiful human being, Danny. Is, he really is. And, you know, for me, that was amazing because to meet my hero and he turned out to be such a nice guy meant the world to me. Because it can sometimes, you meet your hero and they're a complete asshole and it just, just destroys everything, right? It's like, it just kills you. But on the opposite, Danny was an absolute incredible human being. And when I mention this to him, he gets a little bit shy about it because I don't think Danny realises deep down just how, in, how much he is meant to people me being one of them. And that moment, that's when I had the idea of Lights Out because I realised that when you take away one sense, another enlightens. And all of a sudden, I'm in this room and the lights are really becoming a part of the experience. It's not just about music anymore. It's almost theatrical. And that is taking me to another level of experiencing the music. So it heightened my experience of what it was playing by what else was happening. That was the birth of Lights Out. When I explained this to, uh, to James Todd from Global Underground, and I also talked about at Danny's parties, because Danny had uh, a huge gay scene as well, you would get the most extrovert, amazing club people, right? They'd come out gimps in gimp suits and transvestites. And it wasn't about how... It was just 
it was everybody together as one. It was a really special moment, which we don't even get these days anymore, right? These, these kind of parties don't happen anymore. But that, every colour, every race, you know, it was all coming together as one. It was almost a theatrical experience, which I know that Junior Vasquez was kind of a king of as well. I wasn't a big fan of his music, but he had that whole dramatic element to his shows. That was it. That was, that was lights out. That's where the whole idea came from. The whole idea of doing the three compilations, one rubber, one metal, one plastic. It was my, it was my sort of paying homage to the more hedonistic side of uh, Clubland and, you know, the freaks come out type of vibe. And that was my paying homage to it, you know? It, that was my way. It was really awesome. Um. It meant something, right? Like yeah. doing a compilation wasn't just about, I want to put, you know, 15 tracks together. There was a reason for this. And this is why I honestly believe that Global Underground were jumped on board because it, was, it wasn't just another idea. There was a whole concept here. And we toured it and it, you know, it did famously well. So. How, how long did you take to like, you know, curate the tracks that you were thinking of God, including months, on the months, months. compilation. Wow, yeah. And remember, th- at that time, it was all done by vinyl, so, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like, each mix that would end up actually being released, I might have did five, six, seven or eight times because it wasn't like now where you run it all for a computer and you can make it perfect. I mixed it with vinyl and I wanted it to be perfect. So if I did a mix and it was really, and it didn't work out or it came out or it just fucked up at that last minute, I'd be like, no. Stop, got to do it again. And that would be the case then. And so there was one particular mix on Lights Out 1 where I slow one track down to bring in a track that's at about 110 BPM, like a breakbeat record, a German electro record. And then to come out of that, I had to speed up the two vinyl decks together like this. Literally, hand on hand, on decks, no computers involved. So the tempo, and you'll hear it in the album... The tempo rises, but you can hear the mix just slightly come out, just a touch, but then it goes back straight back in. It's like, because I'm literally got my hand on the faders bringing it up. But <laughs> that's just unheard of, you know, and, and it was a very difficult thing to do, and I had to keep redoing it because as soon as you start to touch these, the mix can come out, and it was a, it was a difficult album to do, but I spent, honestly, probably shamefully, about six months doing that album. Well, stories like that just take our appreciation for the album to the next level. Yeah. Because now we're going to be listening for these moments in the mix that we've never been listening yeah. to before. So it's it was really, very really difficult, cool. but it was very, it was it was a, well, it was very challenging. But at the end, when I finished the product, it was so rewarding because it it was something I was proud of because I worked so hard on it. You know, dude, awesome. So want to be respectful of your time. The last thing. I'm going to take it back to the beginning of the documentary. Birmingham. You were intrinsic in the Birmingham scene. And do you recognize who this is? That's um, Tony DeVere, right? This is Tony DeVere's Global Underground cover. And we wanted to gift this to you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Because it's so cool. Tony was a friend of mine. He used to buy records off me. It, it, it's so cool. We're watching the documentary. He was the first video we've ever made was about his global underground in Tel Aviv. We spoke to DJ Chupi, who promoted the whole event, and he gave us the backstory. But I'm watching the documentary, and I hear Birmingham, and I know, you know, they're about to put a plaque honoring him in Birmingham, which oh, really? is awesome. Yeah. But 
And so you hear Birmingham and you know Tony DeVee and I immediately look at the uh, flyers that you included and it's zoomed in on your name, but then you see in the top, yeah, Tony, Tony DeVee. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just, it's really yeah, cool to, to us. He used to I'm buy sure records. you have crazy stories. Yeah, yeah, he used to buy records from me because I worked in a record shop in Birmingham. That's how I first got to meet Tony. And he was a really sweet guy. Um, the good, Tony, what people don't realise is he was playing a club called um, Tintins, which was just a gay club in Birmingham. And he was the first DJ that I think Sunday Essential got behind uh, a, promo- a promotion company in Birmingham. And he was probably, in my mind, because I'd seen this happen in the United States, where the, the gay scene and the straight scene came together. But in England at that time, in the late 90s, or in the mid-90s, it was completely separate until Tony DeVitt. He was the person that I saw that would start playing uh, just normal rave parties, which would bring quite a big gay crowd. And then all of a sudden you had a mix. And that was the birth of Gatecrasher, Sunday Essential, all those kind of nights that spawned off in the UK. They were all thanks to Tony DeVitt, 100%. He created that, almost what became the hard house scene in England. That was all kind of single-handedly created by Tony DeVere and the way that he was merging those two crowds together. And that's not really talked about because I don't think people saw that part of before he became a megastar. He was a resident DJ at a gay club in Birmingham, which was so amazing that everybody talked about it, right? Like, you've got to go there. Straight people wouldn't go because it's a gay club. But all of a sudden now Tony DeVere's playing at straight clubs, it kind of merged it. And that's some of the best parts of the scene in general when you get... Like uh, you were saying, you get that mix and that's where the magic is the on number the dance floor. One, the number one important, like the most, the most beautiful, the most important, everything about music essentially is about one thing. It's bringing people together. Right from the early days of prehistoric man where banging two rocks together, people would stop and turn around and look and all of a sudden walk over to this guy banging two rocks. This guy knew banging these two rocks together, I've got attention here. I'm drawing people together. Music has that one common thing throughout the world. It brings people together, which is a great way to end this because it's never been needed more than today. We need music more now in these current times than ever before. I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think I've been more excited to ever go see a show than tonight after this conversation. So, like, I don't know. Just thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get to the club. We'll see you there. And we're just excited for a great night. And can't thank you enough for making the time thank you. to share the story of underground dance music with us. Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. very much. Thanks. Yeah, this was awesome. <laughs>